Today, we're going to wrap up uh, our series on uncomfortable conversations. And today, we're going to have an uncomfortable conversation about women in the Bible. And, uh, it, and it just depends on your perspective on that. So we're going to unpack that today. This is going to be our last, last uncomfortable conversation uh, for a while. And uh, we're going to head into a new series next week. But I wanted to just go back in time a little bit and just think about how we do read the Bible um, one of the things, when I was seven years old, I was, started Little League. And when I was in Little League, I was in a, what's called a developmental league. And so I would get to play each position on the field to learn each position and how the game worked. And it came to a game, and my position was the pitcher. Now, at age seven, the coaches are pitching fat. We, we were playing hardball, pitching hardballs to us, and we were swinging at them. There was, uh, back in my day, there was no t-ball, you know, all that stuff. So... Uh, we walked uphill both ways in the snow too. So, but I'm sitting there on the pitch. So my job was not to pitch. My job was to catch and to field the, any balls that would usually just come dribbling out towards the, the mound and get it over to first base or wherever it needed to go. So that was my job that day. And so I'm there, I'm ready. I, I, I'm kind of fearless at this point. Played catch with my dad plenty of times. Been on the ball field plenty of times at this point. I'm ready. And uh, the coach throws a, a ball to the batter on the other team, and that batter just connects. I mean, connects with that baseball. Line drive straight at the mouth of me. Hit me right in the lips. I didn't just, just, just didn't react quick enough. Uh, didn't have those cat-like reflexes at age seven. Ball took it, line drive right to the mouth. Knocked out both of my front teeth. Uh, you know, the, everything that goes along with that, swollen lips, everything, no teeth, my teeth are gone. I'm like, where'd they go? But, and then they usher me off the field, get ice, get bandages, all that stuff. And I'm sitting there, but I remember this distinctly. One of the things I was trying hard not to do as a seven-year-old boy was cry. One of the things I didn't want to do in front of all my friends, in front of all the other boys on the field was Cry. Because I, was, I remember being told, hey, you're a wimp. You're a sissy if you cry. Real men don't cry, right? Or as Tom Hanks would say, there is no crying in baseball, <laughs> right? So there's no, we don't, I was raised in, in a way that says you tough it out. You don't cry. You don't show emotion as a boy. And then I learned that into adulthood as a man as well. How many, by the way, how many men here today have heard that kind of, been taught that, right? So thank you for confessing with me today, right? Because I, the first service, they were like, no, not us. Um, so, uh, but they were, you know, so we we're taught this, right? We we're raised this way. And then, you know, as I got older and I began to study the Bible, I started to read the Bible and I started to read these stories and all the guys in here are crying. Like, David's crying. The Psalms are crying. There are tears in the Psalms. Uh, Nehemiah is crying over some broken walls around a city. <laughs> Jesus is weeping over the city of Jerusalem and crying over, about his friend's Lazar, uh, friend Lazarus' death, right? And so all of a sudden I get to the Bible and I find men crying all over the place in the Bible. So what it taught me was that, that my culture and my society had been shaping a view of masculinity in me that didn't line up with the Bible, right? Can, does that make sense? right? So the other thing that occurred to me as a result of this is that we come to the Bible and we read it and we look at it 
And we come to it with our own lenses, right? Because based on our background, our upbringing, uh, our, how we're raised, right? And that it's possible that I was coming to the Bible and viewing it from a male perspective. That I was bringing my masculinity to my reading of the Scripture. Here's a question. Is it possible that men and women read the Bible differently? What do you guys think? Yes? No? I see a lot of people nodding yes. So it's possible that we may read the Bible differently based on our upbringing and based on whether we're male or female. So today we're going to have an uncomfortable conversation about women in the Bible. And because there's a lot of difference of opinion about particularly women in leadership in the church. We're going to unpack that a little bit this morning. Not a little bit, a lot actually. We're going to walk through the whole Bible today in like 15 minutes. You get, you get, you buckled up, right? And in fact, this would be a good time to pull out a Bible or pull out the Bible on your phone, or if you want to pull out the note page on the app, or if you have a piece of paper with you, this is a great place to start to take notes because I'm going to, we're going to take you on a, we're going to go on a journey through the whole Bible in, in a very quick fashion. First of all, let's start though with Methodism. This is about uncomfortable conversations with a Methodist. One of the things we are is free Methodists, and the founder of free Methodism was a man named B.T. Roberts. And B.T. Roberts wrote a book in 1891 called The Ordination of Women, which was for the ordination of women. Now think about that. What was going on in 1891 historically between, you know, were, were women put into leadership positions in 1891? So here B.T. Roberts is advocating for women in leadership in the church at a time when this was not welcome, we would say. And the first woman, ordained woman in the church, Free Methodist Church, happened in 1911. 20 years later, the first woman was ordained. So it took about 20 years for the church to kind of get their brains around this. One of the things that B.T. Roberts argued for, one of his good, good part of his argument was based on this idea that he got from Genesis, from the very beginning. Remember I told you we're going through the whole Bible, so let's go to Genesis, right? So in Genesis... There is the creation of Adam and Eve. And before chapter 3, when they're created, there's equality. There's a, the creation is equal. Uh, male and female, they're created equally, equal worth, equal value, uh, co-partners in the Garden of Eden, right? So this equality exists in the Garden of Eden. But what happens in chapter 3 is what we call the fall of humankind, uh, the serpent tempts them and deceives them, and then they fall and they do what God asked them not to do. And then in chapter 3, we see the consequences of the fall. And we're not gonna, we're, there's a consequence for the serpent, there's a consequence for, the, for Adam, but then there's a consequence for women. And here it is, chapter 3, verse 16. I told you we were going to get uncomfortable. I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Happy Mother's Day, by the way. <laughs> your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So what you see happening in chapter 3 as a result, a consequence of sin in the fall, is then, then inequality is, in, is, 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 in, is happening, right? So God created us equal, but because of sin and fall and brokenness in our relationship with God and with each other, it creates and sets up inequality. So if we go through all the way to the end of the Bible, all the way through Revelation, how many people were here for the Revelation series last summer? Anybody remember that? 
what is the end goal of God's redemption? Where do we end up at the end of the Bible when it comes to the end of all things? What, what is God doing? Where are we headed? This is where you can actually answer. I, it's okay if you want to. What's that? Heaven, right. A new heaven and a new earth. And if you look in Revelation, the end, last couple chapters of Revelation, you'll see that God is taking us to the restoration of what? Garden. The Garden of Eden. So in the end... God is working towards restoring our relationship to God and our relationship to one another, male and female, or, in other words, restore the equality between men and women. That's where we end up. That's where the kingdom ends, ends up, right? So what is God doing between <laughs> these two places, right? What is going on in the kingdom of God between those two places? So, we're going to go through the Bible real quick here. I'm gonna, we're going to do it quick. I'm, uh, uh, trust me. Or, you know me, I'm not long-winded, right? Why do you laugh? I, saw, I heard that laugh. All right. So, but we'll get through this real quick. All right, here we go. So, I want to also think about this this way. So, when we read the Bible and we look at the Bible, what if we were to wear the lenses of God's restoration as we look at it? Knowing that we start here and that we're going to end here with restoration of the garden. What if we start to read the Bible with lenses of looking at how God is going to restore the Garden of Eden? Does that make sense? So let's take a look. So here's what I would call the top 10 list of female leaders in the Bible. Maybe you haven't heard these, about these, people, these women. Maybe you've never heard, but if we put those lenses on and we begin to reread through the Bible again, we might see the role of these women. These are women in leadership in the Bible. First of all, we have Miriam in Exodus chapter 15. She actually is part of the song of Miriam and Moses listed there in Exodus. And what happens at the end of the song is she becomes the worship leader and leads worship in the nation of Israel, particularly with the women there. But she leads worship and leads them to worship God as a response to the Exodus and them and being basically making it through the Red Sea into the wilderness. So she's a worship leader. She's also listed alongside Moses and Aaron, as well as Miriam. So she is a leader within Israel in Exodus 15. Number two, Deborah. If you look at the book of Judges, chapter four and chapter five, you can find the story of Deborah. Deborah was a judge. Now let's back up a little bit. So in the Exodus, Moses was the leader that we probably are familiar with. After Moses came Joshua, who was the leader that took them into the promised land. And then you find the book of Judges, and there are a series of judges that show up in that book that take the role of Moses and take the role of Joshua as spiritual leaders and military leaders. And each of those judges are listed in the book of Judges, judges like Gideon, Samson, and Deborah. Deborah is one of the female judges who leads the nation as a military leader and as a spiritual leader at that time in the nation of Israel. So again, you start to see women emerging in leadership in the Old Testament. Uh, uh, the third one is Huldah. Huldah was a prophetess who, when King Josiah found the book of the law and brought it forward to the people, she prophesied that they were to embrace and renew their covenant with God through the, the, the law. And they were, she told the people that if they didn't do that, they, that God would turn away from them. They needed to turn back to God. So this is a reformation period in the nation of Israel. And Huldah is a prophetess that leads, is a part of leading that reformation under King Josiah 
in chapter, two, uh, chapter 34 of Second Chronicles. Number four is Esther. Esther's got a whole book named after her in the Bible. She's a queen that was able to save her people uh, under, as queen, as a, as a part of her role as queen. Number five, Mary of Bethany. Here we're in the New Testament. Now, the interesting thing about Mary uh, is that Mary is the sister of Martha. And there's a story in the New Testament about Mary and Martha. Jesus comes to their house, and Martha's in the kitchen preparing the meal, and Mary's not helping. And, where, and Martha comes out and says, you know, Jesus, tell her to get in the kitchen with me. And Mary is, what Mary is doing actually is discipleship. She's actually sitting at the feet of Jesus, which was the position of a disciple in the first century. So she's saying, Jesus, I want to be your disciple. So it's interesting that Jesus' response to Mary is, you've chosen the better thing. You've chosen to be my disciple. And that's better than being in the kitchen, right? And so, and Jesus didn't actually say it that way. I'm paraphrasing it. But you get the point. What he is saying, what Jesus is saying, is he's acknowledging and accepting her as one of his disciples. And women were included in his, basically, his gang of disciples, even though they're not listed as one of the 12. Then Mary, uh, number six, there's Mary Magdalene, who is the first woman to be the witness to the resurrection of Jesus. And who does she go tell? She's the one that goes and tells the disciples the that, hey, you know, Jesus is resurrected. She's the first eyewitness of the resurrection and tells them about Jesus. Uh, seven, Lydia is a businesswoman in the book of Acts. And if you go into Acts chapter 16, you'll find that Paul leaves her in charge of the church in Philippi as a house church. And she is the businesswoman that's taken leadership there. Uh, in eight, Romans chapter 16, verses one and two, you find another woman. Her name is Phoebe, and she is a deacon in the church. She's a leader, a deacon leader in the church, forming the role of deacon. We're going to talk a little bit about that in just a minute. And also, if you go read chapter 16, you'll find eight different women listed there, and God, uh, Paul is giving thanks for them in the church and what they're doing for the church. In that list also is Priscilla and Aquila, and Priscilla is the wife of this husband and wife team. And every time we find them listed in the New Testament, Priscilla is always listed first, which is interesting that she is always listed first and not her husband. Because the scholars believe that she was probably the main spiritual leader or teacher of that couple pair that worked together. They, they were co-partners and co-workers in the gospel with Paul, it says, and that Priscilla is always listed first. We know that in Acts 16 that she, or sorry, in Acts 18, she teaches Apollos, another teacher, she teaches him about the way of Jesus. And so she has teaching ability and actually shapes Apollos. And then number 10 is all the women at Pentecost. You know, here's where we go back. So here's how I used to read that story in Pentecost. In chapter Acts chapter 1 and 2, I would read it, and I would always hear, oh, the 12, the 11 disciples, they picked another man to join them, and so there's 12 of them, and they're praying in the upper room. But if you go back and read that text, you'll see that the disciples were not alone in their prayer. There was a group of women praying with them. And when Pentecost happens, the Holy Spirit is poured out both on the men and the women and the Holy Spirit then, I, so my picture now of that event 
is not just the men going out into the streets and speaking different tongues and languages, but the men and women going out into the streets through the Holy Spirit, speaking in different tongues, and that God was using both men and women because Peter, in his speech at that moment, quotes Joel, the prophet Joel, and says, your sons and daughters will prophesy. And that's what you're seeing, right? That's what he's alluding to. He's like, you're seeing your sons and daughters prophesying through the Holy Spirit. So at the very beginning at the church is the inclusion of women in leadership and the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So that's the top 10. Keep in mind that when we read the scripture this way, when we start to see these uh, women emerging, what we see is that God is moving towards the restoration of equality and the restoration of the Garden of Eden. We see that through the whole of scripture. So part of the re- though people say, well, then why aren't women included in leadership in some churches? Now, in the Free Methodist Church, we do ordain women, include them as a, in a role of leadership. But there are other, some Methodist denominations that do not, and there are other denominations that do not include women in the role of leadership in the church. So what's the reason for that? So let's get uncomfortable. You ready? You ready to be uncomfortable? Are you still with me, by the way? I'm check, just checking because I, t- I, you know, take some notes. Um, but let's take a 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And I've isolated this out, this out, and it says this. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Anybody feel uncomfortable? Yes, thank you. That's uncomfortable, right? And I, I will tell you that we look at this verse, and this is the verse that many denominations point to and say, this is why we don't put women in leadership. Now, I have yet, I've been around, I've been in many, many churches. I would say well over 100 different churches, different backgrounds, different denominations, all different types of churches, worship together with brothers and sisters in Christ. I have only seen one church that actually follows this verse. (laughs) Every church I've been to, women are not following. The women are a part of the church's life, even if they're not ordaining them, right? Um, And so the only place I saw this actually practice was when I was on a mission trip in Jamaica. And we were, uh, on Sunday, we were going to a rural church in Jamaica, and two of the young women that were on our team were planning to share their testimonies of what God had been doing in their life when we got to the church. When we got to the church, we learned uh, from the pastor that women were not allowed to speak in church. And they actually divided the church up into men on one side and women on the other side, and the women remained quiet. This is the only time I've ever seen this uh, practice. And the reason I remember it is because when we got there and the pastor said that the two young women that are prepared to speak were not able to speak, they looked at me and said, Matt, what do you got? I had about 10 minutes to come up with a message, and I'm so thankful I had my morning devotions that day because I had something to say. But I also felt bad for these two young women that had prepared themselves, gotten ready, and showed up, and probably would have had a better message than my last-minute put-together devotional that I had that day. And I felt bad for them because they had prepared, and God is working in their lives, and God did give them something to say, and they were prevented from saying it. But that's the only time in all of ministry I've actually seen that verse practice. 
Otherwise, this is not followed. Now, what's going on here? I think we have to step back and look a little bit at some more context here. So first of all, let's look at the biblical context here. When you look at this, and this would be a great place to open up your Bible. If you don't already have it open, I'm going to walk you through what happens here in chapter 2 and 3 of 1 Timothy. So in 1 Timothy, let's back up, because when you're interpre- when reading Paul, Paul uses a word, and that word should give us pause. And the word here is in verse 8, chapter 2, verse 8, if you're looking at it with me. What is in chapter 2, verse 8 right there? Huh? What do you see there in chapter 2, the very first word in verse 8 of chapter 2? Who's got it? What's the first word? Therefore. Whenever Paul writes, therefore, that should make us go, okay, what's he talking about? What is, and everything that he has said before that is what he's going, we have to go back up and say, what's going on? We need to read what's before the therefore. And what Paul is talking about in those first seven verses is two things orderly worship. In fact, he says, I want all people, right, to lead quiet lives, all lead quiet lives. And he also says that God wants all to be saved. So there are two key themes here that Paul's talking about, worship and all coming to know, sal- coming to know God and know salvation. This is, hold on to that second thought. But what Paul is talking about is what's happening in worship in Ephesus in this particular congregation. And he's saying, therefore, then he says that he lists that verse. Now, the other thing we need to know about this is, and there's a lot of different scholarship around this issue, but in Ephesus is one of the great wonders of the ancient world called the Temple of Diana or the Temple of Artemis. And in it was worship, this was a fertility worship. Uh, it was about, uh, it was also the worship of motherhood and the worship of fertility. And so what they're doing is they're worshiping fertility, but one of the key teachings of the temple was that women were superior to men. Again, it was a teaching that presented inequality in the, in the, in the relationship. And so this teaching was actually the opposite of what uh, was going on in some of the biblical context, right? So if you think about today, that actually is part of today, Right? How many people have watched Wonder Woman 1984, are aware of Wonder Woman, the comic book character, right? Uh, Wonder Woman was created by a man and his wife named William Marston, and he created it based in Greek mythology. What is her first name? Diana. Based in the Temple of Diana, based in Greek mythology. And he believed, along with his wife, who was also a psychiatrist, that women were superior to men. And so the character was developed to show that women were superior to men. And so again, this is kind of a reverse of what we typically think of, but again, it's breaking the, inequal- the equality and creating inequality as well, but just in, the, in a different direction than we typically assume. So that's what's going on behind the Wonder Woman character. Now, so maybe what Paul's doing is arguing... <laughs> in that cultural context, hey, you know what you're learning at the temple over here? It, you know, that's not. Because he uses the word to have authority over or dominate a man, right? So he's actually countering some of the cultural teaching of the temple of Artemis there. But we need to keep reading because we have to look at the, lo- the more context in this letter. You still with me? Can I get an amen if you're still with me? 
If you're not with me, time to wake up. All right. So let's look at chapter three. Now, what's happening in chapter three? Who's got chapter three open right now? What's happening in chapter three? What is Paul laying out? The qualifications for what? Deacons. Okay. The qualifications for deacons and we want to go back. Who in our list of top 10 female leaders was a deacon in the church? Do you remember? Phoebe. Romans chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Phoebe is a deacon in the church, so keep that in mind. So let's look at verses 8 to 11 in chapter 3. It says this. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience, they must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, new paragraph, in the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. The women. Who are the women that Paul is talking to? The women, one interpretation is the women of the, the wives of the deacons. The other possibility is that while Paul is talking to women deacons, remember, he's listing out the qualifications of deacons. So let me read that last verse again, verse 11, to you in a different way with my own little paraphrase translation. In the same way, the women deacons are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. Does it, do, do you see it? Do you see how if you look at it from a different perspective, that it may very well be the inclusion of women deacons and the qualifications for all deacons in the early church, right? That's a different lens, right? It's putting on a different lens as we look at the Bible. And so maybe that's what's going on with Paul, what Paul is saying. So here's an important question. Is Paul contradicting himself? He just said in the chapter 2, Women need to be quiet and learn. And then in chapter 3, he's saying, oh, by the way, women deacons, how are they supposed to be deacons if they're supposed to be following the verse in chapter 2? See, see that? See how there's a difference? So within the same letter, within the same context, Paul's saying, possibly saying two different things. Is he contradicting himself? Maybe. Maybe not. Stay with me. You still with me? Maybe Paul's motivated by something else here. And I want to pull back even to the greater context of Paul. We have to look at all of Paul's writings and look at all of Paul's letters and give it some more context. Maybe Paul is more interested in the advancement of the gospel than local practice. <laughs> Think about it. In Acts chapter 16, Paul sends Timothy, right, the person this letter is written to, to be in ministry, sends him to Ephesus, and before he sends him there, he says to him this, go get circumcised. An adult male. I told you it was uncomfortable. And so he says, I want you to go get circumcised. Now, Paul has already written several times in other letters that circumcision has no value. <laughs> Why would Paul say to Timothy, go get circumcised before you go preach the gospel here in this place? 
And it says in the text that he didn't want it to be a stumbling block to people hearing the gospel. So he says, go pra- he says one thing and then tells Timothy to practice another thing for the sake of the gospel. Could it be that's what's happening in 1 Timothy in worship in Ephesus as well? He's saying, in, the, in your worship, in your order of worship, pra- try and practice this for the sake of the gospel. But it doesn't mean that it applies to every church everywhere else in the early church. And even then, he acknowledges that women are deacon leaders in the church in the very next chapter. What's going on with Paul is his motivation for the advancement of the gospel. Let's remind ourselves, last verse here, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 21 and 23. Paul says this, To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law, to the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. I think Paul is always contextualizing practice for the sake of the gospel. What needs to happen for the gospel to be advanced for the gospel to be heard, is what is at work in Paul. And Paul, in Romans 16, gives thanks for many, many women, eight women actually that I can count at least in Romans 16, for their co-workers being co-workers in the ministry with Paul and deacons and leaders in the church. He's thankful for them. He appreciates them. So let me ask a question this Mother's Day. Let's ask ourselves a question. Who are the women of faith we're thankful for today? Who are the women of faith in our lives that invested faith in us, that have been a part of advancing the gospel in our own lives? Who are those women that we're thankful for? If you keep reading Timothy, the letters to Timothy, in the second letter to Timothy, Paul starts out the letter giving thanks for Timothy's faith that was given to him by his mother and his grandmother. Paul's giving thanks for Paul, uh, Timothy's mother and grandmother in that letter. He's saying, I am appreciative of the faith they passed on to you, Timothy. Who are the women in your life that have passed on the faith to you? Who would you thank God for today? You know, it's hard to do that if you're quiet. It's hard to pass on your faith without saying it. It can be done. I'm not saying it can't be done, but it's hard to do. I think of my own life. I was just home. My daughter got married, and I'm, I'm still recovering from being an emotional wreck. Um, I, w- I was able to cry, right? Can it, you know, see, God can do miracles. Uh, I've learned to cry over the years, and it's okay to do that. Uh, but I was at home with my parents, and we were uh, having a family, you know, discuss- we were just sitting around talking after a meal and sitting in the living room, and, and I-, I mentioned being baptized as a baby in the Lutheran church. So I- I've always, t- my whole life, I believed that I've been baptized in the Lutheran church, and my dad says, You're- you weren't baptized in the Lutheran church, you are baptized in the Methodist church, because my dad's a Methodist, right? So he's like, you were- we baptized you in the Methodist church. I'm like, well, dad, that's news to me. I've always been told I was baptized Lutheran. And then my mom chimes in, and she's like, I'm pretty sure Luther... And then 
you know, they start debating. You know, mom and dad get into one of their little, little arguments, right? It was, it was just like I took a match and lit it and threw it into the room, and they're like, well, no, no, he's Methodist. No, he's Lutheran. No, he's Methodist. No, he's Lutheran, right? So this is going on. They're having this little debate, and I'm scratching my head. What's going on here? Like, what, what, what am I? And uh, so my mom just gets up, and she leaves the room. And I was like, oh, you've gone and done it now, Dad. You have done it now. And uh, she leaves the room, and then she comes back in the room, and she's holding my baby book that lists all the stuff. You know, I was a firstborn child, by the way, and so I have one of these books. My brother, he doesn't have one. But being a firstborn, I had this book, and she opens it up, and she goes to my record of my baptism in my baby book and says, Lutheran Church, just outside Washington, D.C., the church that we knew in Washington, D.C. area. And says, see, he was baptized Lutheran, Don. And I watched my dad eat crow, and uh, my mom was not silent or learning, and she was not following uh, the verse we just read anyway. But one of the things that it reminded me about was that my mom was the one that first took me to church. Because at that time in my life, my dad was not a Christian. My mom was my faith leader in my home. And, she, and so we're thankful for those women who have invested faith in us. And my grandmother was another wonderful woman of faith who invested in me as a young child. And as I grew up, and, he became, and he, unfortunately she passed away before I became a minister, and she would have been so proud to see that, right? But that's the point, right? God, I don't, I don't think God... I think God's mostly concerned that our relate, we have a relationship with God and that God, the relationship is restored and that our relationship to one another is restored as well. That we get back to what God hopes for for us in the garden. Let's pray together. God, we're thankful for the women in our lives today that have invested, have given us our faith, that have passed on the faith to us. Our grandmothers, our mothers, the other women of God that you've placed in our lives that maybe not even blood-related. Thank you for these women of faith that you have spoken through and spoken through their witness and spoken through their words to us and their actions. Thank you, God. We just pause to give you thanks for the women in our lives on this Mother's Day, and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.